Good morning, church family, and welcome to you all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know most of you, most of you know me, but if you're visiting with us for your first time this morning, my name's Chad, or according to Pastor Dan, Chaddy, haven't heard that in a while, and I'm the pastor in training here. I have the joy and the honor and the weight of kicking off our new sermon series. As you know, we're going through the Gospel of Luke, and we've titled the sermon series, The Gospel of Luke, The Upside-Down Kingdom. We're probably going to be in this book for more than a year. I hope you're looking forward to that. I am. And we have some scripture journals for sale out in our bookstall. If you don't know what that is, it's just uh, the Gospel of Luke with a lot of room to write journal entries in. Dan's holding one up there, and we also have a, an illustrated one with some pictures you can color in. Way to go, Dan. We didn't even coordinate that. Um, yeah, you can write your prayers. You can write sermon notes, whatever you want. They're right out there in the bookstall. I'm honored to share with you all on behalf of our pastors why they chose the book of Luke. So first of all, as all of you know who call this church home and our members here, the typical diet of the Word of God here is preaching through books of the Bible. Occasionally, we'll do a topical series. We don't believe anything's wrong with that, but the main thing we do here is preach through books of the Bible. If you're visiting with us this morning, that's very important for you to know. And uh, I shamelessly say, now's a good time to join our church. It always is a good time to join our church, but... As we kick off a sermon series, now would be a great time. Our pastors believe preaching consecutively through books of the Bible is the best way to disciple God's people and to speak from God's word to those of you who aren't yet Christians. They believe that that protects us and them from preaching too many hobby horses and from avoiding preaching hard doctrines. I actually recently heard at a Connect lunch, one of the big reasons someone has joined this church is because they've heard hard doctrines preached from the pulpit. That was a big compliment. So why the gospel of Luke? First, let me quickly define gospel, because in this context, there are two ways we can define it. First is the explicit gospel, which means good news. What's the good news? That God has made a way for sinners to be saved through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of his son, Jesus Christ. But the second definition is this. Gospel is a genre of scripture. There are many genres of scripture. There's poetry, narrative, genealogies, apocalyptic, many others. And many of these genres can even be found inside of one book. We'll see many different genres in the book of Luke. So the gospel of Luke is in the biblical genre of gospel, but it can't be divorced from the first definition. This genre does describe the perfect life of the God who became man, Jesus Christ. He died on a cross in the place of sinners, rose again three days later, ascended back to heaven where he rules and reigns and offers salvation to all who repent and believe in him. So because our pastors have the conviction, as Paul did, to preach to us the whole counsel of God, they've decided to go through Luke, as we haven't been in a gospel in 10 years at Windsor Community Church. 
One more quick thing, as I will say later in the sermon, our pastors believe that the whole Bible is about Jesus because Jesus says the whole Bible is about him in Luke 24. So we can preach Christ from every single book of the Bible, and we should. When we preach him from the Old Testament, we preach him as the fulfillment of promises, types, and shadows. When we preach him from the New Testament letters, we preach his life, his death, his resurrection, and how that enables us to live as kingdom citizens. And when we preach him from the Gospels, we preach him. We will stare right at the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his ministry, the way he felt, the struggles he had. We will see him as a man and as God. We'll see his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Brothers and sisters, with no hyperbole, there's nothing better for us to look at in this new year than Jesus Christ. Our pastors are excited and expectant. I am too, and I hope you are too, as we kick off this sermon series. Let's pray. Father, you are our great God and King, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of your word made flesh and your word inscripturated. We are excited and expectant for what you will do Yes, in us as individuals, but also in us as Windsor Community Church. Lord, we pray that as we, as we look at King Jesus directly together on Sunday mornings over the next year, that we would become more like Jesus as we behold him. That, that we, with unveiled faces beholding the glory of you, would be changed from one degree of glory to another. We praise you for the gift of your son, the forgiveness of our sins, and bringing us into your kingdom and enabling us to live more like you. Pray, Lord, this morning as I preach your word and kick this series off that you would use me as your mouthpiece, that I would get out of the way and we would even now look to Christ because there is nothing better to look at. We love you, Lord, and pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What does it mean to be certain? Webster's Dictionary defines it as this, fixed, settled, dependable, reliable. I love this last one, indisputable. What are you certain of this morning? We all long for certainty. The students in here, you want to be certain you're taking the right classes and getting the right grades and going to the right colleges or universities. Many of us, we want to be certain we're applying for the right jobs and accepting the right jobs. We want to be certain about the person we marry and where to live and how we're eating and exercising. And let's be honest, I know there are many of us who struggle with certainty about how to follow Jesus and what it means to be his disciple. We've been taught things like where God guides, God provides. And it's not about perfection, it's about direction. And God loves me because he loves me and not because of my performance and many other things. 
But maybe we aren't actually certain those things are true. Or maybe they're just certain in our minds and nowhere else. We've never actually lived out those beliefs. How certain are we really if we aren't living out the things that we have been taught about God? The desire to be certain isn't wrong, but the reality is that we live in a world full of uncertainties. And because we aren't God and we aren't in control, there's much that we can be uncertain of. And uncertainty can make all of us struggle with anxiety. At least that's been my experience. I wonder if you can relate. So I have a question and a personal story for you guys. How many of you like winter time? I want to see a raise of hands. Oh, wow. God bless you guys. That's why you live in Colorado, right? <laughs> Historically, I've hated it. Honest confession. I've grown in the last few years because God's sanctifying me, and I'm trying not to be such a grumbler and a complainer. But if you would have met me like three years ago and for the previous seven or eight, I would have been a guy who hated winter. Asked my wife, I probably wasn't super fun to be around during the winter. I don't like the cold that much. I don't like the snow. I don't like driving in it. But in the last few years, like I said, the Lord has grown me and there has been a saving grace for me. It is the gift of pond hockey. Yes, hockey, ice hockey outside on a frozen pond. We usually start before 7 a.m. when it's still kind of dark. It's less than 15 degrees out there. But before I can ever go skate on the pond or bring my precious five-year-old son with me, I need certainty that the ice is safe to skate on. So the pond that I skate on is in Fort Collins, and it's managed by a guy named Bike. He has some friends who helps him, but he's the main guy. He does many things to manage the ice, but one of his main responsibilities is to measure the depth of the ice. He drills a hole in it. He measures it. So in mid to late December, we pond hockey players start checking our emails. We're reaching out to one another. Have you heard from Bike yet? Is the ice ready to skate on? And when we finally receive an email from him or hear from a friend that the ice is ready, meaning it's at least four to five inches thick, joy fills our hearts. I was actually just there on Friday morning. We can be certain that the ice is thick enough to skate on and the pond hockey season has begun. And if you are a hockey player, a pond hockey player, the certainty of the ice can't just stay in your mind. You can't receive the email, go to the pond, and then sit on the bank on the bench and watch everyone else skate but not skate yourself. The certainty in your mind compels you to lace up your skates and trust the ice. There is much to be uncertain of in this life. But Luke writes his letter to his friend Theophilus and to us to give us certainty that through Jesus Christ, God has ushered in the upside-down kingdom. That we can be certain about the things that we have been taught and that Luke is going to remind us of. That there is one God, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who is ruling and reigning. He is holy and mighty and faithful. 
that his plan from eternity past is to gather a people for himself through his son, Jesus Christ, who lived perfectly on our behalf, died on a cross in our place, and rose again and is seated in heaven right now. He will return again someday and consummate our salvation. And until then, we can be certain that he is with us, that he will never forsake us, and will one day bring us to be home with him. We will feast in the house of Zion, and we're singing that song at the end of the service today. God is beckoning us through this book, through Luke. The ice is safe. Skating is joyful and hard, and it's going to cost something, but come skate. The structure this morning for the sermon will be this. Author, audience, aim. I'm not going to give you verses. We'll see these throughout. Each one of these points is going to be progressively longer. We're not going to spend much time in the first two points. So first, let's look at the author. The author of this book is Luke though that's less explicit as some of Paul's letters where he basically says, I, Paul, am writing this letter. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. I know many of you know that. And within Luke and Acts, we read of times where Luke says we in reference to the apostle Paul, implying that he was a friend, a disciple, and a companion of Paul. And then Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, you know, at the end of Paul's letters, he says, this person greets you, and that person greets you, and this person greets you. In Colossians 4.14, Paul says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. So A, we know that Luke was Paul's traveling companion, and as I said, probably more than that, a friend and a disciple. And B, we know that he was a physician and a doctor, or a doctor. And in that time, doctor didn't only mean medical doctor, but someone who was highly educated in many disciplines. He was like a a jack of all disciplines, Uh, but that included medicine. So I thought, surely Luke used his skill set to care for Paul as Paul was beaten and whipped multiple times. Luke was a good friend to have. And because Luke was a friend and traveling companion of Paul, his gospel had apostolic endorsement as trustworthy because of Paul's confirmation of it. Paul was an eyewitness to Jesus Christ, Jesus appearing to him, and Paul was one of the ones that Luke certainly interviewed to write this book, and Paul endorsed Luke's gospel. Another evidence we have is that church tradition has attributed Lucan authorship to the book of Luke since the second century. So what else do we know about Luke? He was a Gentile, which means non-Jewish. He was not Jewish. There are 66 books in the Bible. 64 of them are written by Jews. Luke and Acts are the only books in the Bible written by a Gentile. It seems that Luke was a second-generation disciple because he says that eyewitnesses had delivered the gospel to us. He doesn't say that he was an eyewitness, but he lived during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who had delivered to him the gospel. So the book of Luke, this is important, the book of Luke is a reliable historical document, not an epic game of telephone, as we've heard some skeptics say. So that's our author, Luke. Let's now look at the audience. The audience is Theophilus and us and the church of all ages. So first, he says he's writing to a man named Theophilus. But most likely, Luke knew that his gospel would be read more broadly. 
It's not as if someone went and stole the Gospel of Luke out of Theophilus's sock drawer, copied it, and sent it out to the churches. Theophilus was most likely a Gentile and probably a man of great wealth and social standing because we can see at the end of verse 3 that Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. And most excellent is a title used in the book of Acts to describe Roman governors like Felix and Festus. Theophilus may have even financed Luke's writing project. And he was most likely a Christian or at least someone very interested in Christianity and on the verge of becoming a Christian. I believe Theophilus was a Christian, but if he wasn't, he was close. We can see at the end of verse 4 that there were some things regarding following Jesus that he had already been taught. Also, Theophilus' name means friend of God or beloved of God. So he too, like Luke, may have been a second-generation Christian because to get a name like that, maybe his parents were Christians. Theophilus had either made some big sacrifices or was considering making some big sacrifices to be a part of this fringe movement of followers of Jesus and a soon-to-be-very-persecuted fringe movement under Nero. But this book was also written for us. And many of us, most of us, maybe all of us, like Theophilus, are Gentile Christians in need of certainty. We, too, need to be reminded slash want to know that the ice is thick enough to skate on. And the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write this so that every follower of Jesus could have certainty, so that the church for all time could be certain of who Jesus is and what he did. So Luke is the author. He's writing to Theophilus and to us, and now we get to the meat of the message this morning, his aim. Before we look at Luke's aim, a very important heads up. We just preached through three passages within the first two chapters of Luke for our Advent sermon series. I know many of you were here for that. We preached Mary's Magnificat, Zechariah's Benedictus, and Simeon's Song. So we have decided that we aren't going to re-preach those passages. In fact, because the men who preached those sermons preached them contextually, meaning they drew out the context, we have basically already preached chapters 1 and 2. So next week we're going to pick back up in chapter 2, verse 39. So my aim this morning as we look at Luke's aim for his gospel is to use the Advent sermons as case studies for what we will see throughout the book of Luke. This will be a good reminder for those of you who are here during Advent and for those of you who may be visiting with us this morning, this is going to catch you up so you don't feel lost next week when we start in chapter 2 verse 39. Again, we've titled the sermon series, The Gospel of Luke, The Upside-Down Kingdom. And in the first two chapters of Luke, we'll see how God is ushering in his upside-down kingdom, and I'll explain what I mean by upside-down kingdom in a moment. So let's go back to the text. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. 
So many people had written a narrative of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's believed that Mark for sure had already written his gospel and probably even Matthew, and that Luke had access to Mark and Matthew's gospels. So he's just setting a precedent. Apparently that's an ancient thing where they describe the precedent for what they're doing. And then he says that things have been accomplished. Another word is fulfilled. Things have been accomplished or fulfilled among us. We will see this throughout Luke. He may have been a Gentile, but he knew his Old Testament. He knew Jesus didn't just appear out of nowhere, but that he is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. We see in Mary and Zechariah's songs that they're praising God for Jesus because they know he is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. We see that Zechariah mentions that he knows Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to David, that his son or that his seed would sit on his throne forever. So through Jesus, the triune God has accomplished salvation and is applying it as he ushers in his upside down kingdom. And verse 2 says that there were many eyewitnesses from the beginning of Jesus' life and ministry who were ministers of the word and had delivered them to Luke and all the other second generation disciples. And so, verses 3 and 4 say this, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Dr. Luke has been following things closely. He hasn't been sitting up in a library by himself writing his gospel. He is conducting numerous interviews. And his aim is to write an orderly account so that Theophilus and us can have certainty concerning who Jesus is. And what he accomplished. And what's Luke's message? That Theophilus and every follower of Jesus can be certain that through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, God has ushered in his upside-down kingdom. And so finally, what what do I mean by upside-down kingdom? What do theologians mean when they use the term upside-down kingdom? First, we must acknowledge that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. The way he brought in his kingdom was unlike anything anyone expected. He turned every expectation on its head, a.k.a. upside down. And he brings a reversal of all of our human value systems. He didn't come as a conquering king. He came as a suffering servant. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. He didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick. He didn't come for the strong, he came for the weak. He teaches about his kingdom that the first will be last and the last will be first, that the blind will be seeing and the seeing will be blind, that the hungry will be filled and the filled will be hungry, that it is better to give than to receive, that to live we must die. Those are just a few examples of the upside-down kingdom. So in this final point, I want to look at two things, orderly account, number one, and examples from these first two chapters of how we can be certain, that's number two, that God has inaugurated his upside-down kingdom through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So first, orderly account, that's no understatement from Dr. Luke. He wrote the longest gospel. 
Matthew's gospel is 1,071 verses. Mark's is 678. John's is 869. Luke's is 1,151. As I said, his is also the only gospel with a sequel, Acts, the book of Acts. And between Luke and Acts, Luke almost wrote a third of our New Testaments, a little bit more than Paul, actually. He is extremely detailed in his writing. A few fun examples of this is in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. He says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Thanks for the detail, Luke. Let's look at Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He's going to give us all this detail just to tell us that this is when the word of God came to John the Baptist. Listen to this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. No kidding, Luke. Orderly account, detail. I'm going off notes here, but I listened to Aaron Santini's sermon from The Crossing when he kicked this off. And he said there was a guy who was an atheist who said, I'm going to go to the Middle East and I'm going to use the book of Luke and Acts to disprove Christianity. And he came back a Christian. It was so detailed, archaeological evidence, every evidence said this is a reliable historical document. And because of his detail, some of our most beloved stories of Jesus' life can only be found in Luke. The parable of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son, the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, the story of Jesus' boyhood when he's 12 years old that I'm preaching next week. We only find those in Luke. Luke also gives the most detail about the foretelling and the births of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 25, we read in detail about the angel Gabriel appearing to John's father, Zechariah, and telling him that even though he and his wife are old, they are going to have a son, and he will be the forerunner to the Messiah, fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi. And then in verses 26 through 45, we read the parallel, orderly account of the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary and telling her she will be the mother of the Messiah. As we walk through this book together, we will continue to see Luke's meticulous attention to detail. And the reason that he gives that detail is so that his friend Theophilus and so that we could have certainty about Jesus Christ, the king of the upside-down kingdom. So let's look at certainty. We'll look at a few themes of the book of Luke. And like I said, we'll use some of these Advent sermons that we preached as case studies. Luke is zealous that his readers would know who Jesus is and that repentance and faith bring one into the kingdom and enable one to live in the upside-down kingdom. A few of the themes, note-takers, you might not want to try to keep up with me. These are just appetizers. You're going to see them throughout. A few of the themes that we'll see throughout this book are God's sovereign plan to fulfill his promises to bring the Messiah and create a new community of worshipers, a.k.a. the church. We'll see the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll see the upside-down nature of God's love for outcasts of society. We'll see the importance of prayer. We'll see the joyful praise of God's people. 
and the opposition of those who want nothing to do with his upside-down kingdom. We saw many of these themes in the Advent sermons. I've already mentioned Luke's description of the foretelling and birth narratives of John and Jesus and how Luke describes their births as promises fulfilled by a sovereign God. Another theme we'll see is the work of the Holy Spirit. That starts in chapter 1 by saying that the Holy Spirit will miraculously cause Mary to become pregnant with the Son of God. And when Mary visits Elizabeth, John leaps in Elizabeth's womb, and the text says Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she acknowledges Jesus as her Lord. And when John is born, the text says Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and joyfully praises God for the salvation he knows has come in Jesus. And he prophesies over his son John as the forerunner to the Messiah. And when Simeon sees the baby, Jesus, the text says the Holy Spirit is upon him. And it says that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. We will see the activity of the Holy Spirit throughout Jesus' life and ministry. And if we were to continue into the book of Acts, we would see the Holy Spirit's role in the beginning of the church. We will also see the upside-down nature of God's kingdom displayed in his love for the outcasts of society. We see examples of this as God chooses Mary, a teenage girl, to be the mother of his son. And then as the angels appear to the lowly shepherds to announce the birth of the Savior, Jesus will heal many with leprosy, paralytics, those with unclean spirits. And as he has table fellowship with sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors, even calling one tax collector to follow him and to be his disciple. We will see it powerfully displayed in a couple of our most beloved stories, Jesus' meal with Zacchaeus, I love that story, and the parable of the prodigal son. Another theme we will see is the joyful praise of God's people. We really saw this in the Advent sermons. Mary's Magnificat is full of praise to God for ushering in his upside-down kingdom through her son. I'm going to reread the whole Magnificat because it's amazing. It's almost like it's a microcosm of the book of Luke. Listen, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Amen, Mary. Mary's song is written in the perfect past tense which means that something that has happened in the past that continues on in the future. Charles Spurgeon called it the believer's rule of three. Past, present, future. God has, God is, and God will. 
And that's what Luke is calling us to believe and live out. That God has, God is, and God will. And that produces joyful praise. We see the joy of God's people again in Zechariah and Simeon's songs. We will see many, many more people praising God or his son, Jesus Christ, for receiving healing from Jesus in myriad ways. There is much more we will see, brothers and sisters. After consulting various commentaries and study Bibles, I counted a combined 42 themes in the book of Luke. Maybe too detailed for most of us, definitely for me. Obviously too many to fit in one sermon. But one more final way I want to whet your appetite for this journey through Luke. And then we'll circle back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. One of the best stories, I believe, in all the Gospels is Luke 24, when Luke appears to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection and tells them that the whole Bible is about him. And he preaches a sermon to them about all of the ways that the Old Testament is about him. Wouldn't you have liked to be one of those disciples and hear that sermon? I hope one of the first things we do after the feast in the house of Zion is God rewinds redemptive history and we get to watch it all. And we get to see that sermon and hear it. I know many of you have probably started new Bible reading plans this past week. I encourage all of you, based on Jesus' words, that as you read the Old Testament, seek to understand how it points you to the upside-down kingdom. It may not explicitly foreshadow Jesus, but somehow it will point you to the road that leads to him. And because of this reality, in all the preaching books I've read, in the training at this church and in the Crossway Network and the documentaries I have watched, preachers are taught that every sermon in some way, shape, or form must include an aspect of the gospel because the whole Bible is about the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So if, if I or if any of you, if we were to preach a sermon in a Jewish synagogue that does not offend everyone, we have not preached a Christ-centered sermon. There are so many more great stories in this gospel, and each of them help us learn about our king and what it means to live in his kingdom. So, dear saints, brothers and sisters of my church family, in a world of uncertainty, God wants us to be certain about him. He inspired Luke to write this orderly account so that we would be compelled to skate on the ice that we would have certainty about the things that we have been taught about following Jesus. And those things wouldn't just stay in our minds. They would move to our hearts and our hands and our feet. God has brought the upside-down kingdom into redemptive history. One commentator, I summarize it like this. He, he, he said it better than I can. We will be reminded through this series of God's sovereign plan for redemptive history and the new community he has created and called the church. We will see old barriers of race removed. New hope will abound. And anyone and everyone can belong to his kingdom. We will see Jesus 
at the center of it all, the promised Messiah Lord who by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension proves he is worthy to be trusted. He will bring God's promises to completion just as he inaugurated them. We will be reminded that being a disciple is not always easy. There is a cost, a great cost, to following Jesus, and some in church history will pay all, but it is full of rich joy and blessing that transcends anything this life can offer us. So we can be certain as we go through this journey that the ice is thick enough to skate on. May we, Windsor Community Church, go joyfully skate in the upside-down kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you, we love you, we thank you for the gift of your son and the gift of your word as I already have praised you and thank you for. We are excited and expectant for this series through Luke, Lord, and I just pray that you would call each of us to a deeper walk with you, that we would truly follow Jesus no matter the cost, because we know the ice is safe, Lord, and we can be certain that you are with us and you're for us. You'll never leave or forsake us. And we will be with you again someday. And that is as true as the fact that you came. You sent your son and he lived perfectly. He died in our place. I pray, Lord, for those who aren't yet a part of your kingdom, uh, that you would be drawing them to yourself even now, irresistibly, that they would see the joy of following Jesus and forsake all to follow him. We love you, Lord, and pray this in the name of, of King Jesus. Amen.